You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. We have been uh, doing a series uh, called Jesus on Every Page, and we've been walking through the entirety of Scripture. Uh, hopefully, you're beginning to see that Jesus really is on uh, every page, because as, as elders, we really thought it was good for us this fall uh, and moving into the new year, just to take some time to really just dig into the story again, because I, I think after COVID, it just felt like it was good to just kind of immerse ourselves uh, in the Bible, in the story of God, and, and kind of see the big movements of Scripture and 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 get familiar again with it, not to say that we've forgotten the plot, but it is easy uh, to forget the plot, and that's how life is sometimes. And so hopefully this has been helpful for you. And also just wanted to uh, remind you, we do have a Jesus Storybook Bibles out in the gathering. If you don't own one, uh, adults or uh, those with children and families, please grab one. Those are our gifts to you. I think they don't cost anything. Am I right on that? If not, I'll fit the bill. But um, they're, they're right out there. It's a fantastic way to kind of walk through the big uh, structure, the big stories of Scripture, uh, the highlights, and just really to be able to see how Jesus really is on every page, how he's revealing himself uh, and with hints and, and images and pictures, and also how he does come eventually and shows us how to live with him uh, in, in the world. And, and I think it's good also that we immerse ourselves in the story because even the Bible itself says in Hebrews 4 that this word is living and active. It's deeper than a double, it's sharper than a double-edged sword and it gets to our souls and our spirit. So when we read the scriptures, the spirit of God works on us, shows us things, uh, convicts us, teaches us. And it's, a, it's not a, just a book to, to mess around with, but it's a book that will expose us. And it's good to be exposed before God, to remember who he is, to remember what he's called us to and those ways in which our lives get out of balance or out of whack or, or sins that he needs to deal with or attitudes he needs to deal with. Um, and so it's, it's a powerful, living, active book. And when we lose the story, we lose the plot, we also lose who we are and what we're called to be and how we're called to live and how we're called to serve our world. I think it's also important to, to do a series like this and really dig into the stories because I, I've heard this, um, thankfully not much from our own church, but I have heard this many times is that the Old Testament, God is angry. The Old Testament is about law, but the New Testament is about grace. It's about Jesus. It's about love. <laughs> it's not. The Old Testament is about grace. The New Testament is about grace. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. The whole thing is grace. We don't read it as we saw off the Old Testament. God is angry and mad and killing everybody. And then he comes in Jesus and then he's gracious, sprinkling love dust on everybody. That's not how the scriptures work. And as we've walked through the Old Testament and got a heavy dose, you see God's mercy and faithfulness and grace time and time again. Even when he gives the, the Ten Commandments, where does he begin? Not with the Ten Commandments. He begins with, I rescued you. I love you. You're my people. Now, in light of those things, go and love me as if it's all true, right? So it's good that we spend our time and our lives and some months together immersing ourselves in the story, seeing Jesus on every uh, page. And so this morning, 
we are going to focus for in the next few weeks on the life of King David. Um, and so at the point in the story, God has moved his people, as we saw in Joshua last week, he's moved his people into the promised land, and now the people want a human king. And Saul comes on the scene first, and it's not going well for Saul, as we'll see in just a moment here, but then God calls and commissions King David to be the king of Israel, the king who will be in the line of the royal family, the Messiah. Eventually, one day, Jesus will come to redeem and restore all things. So this morning, I want to look at the life of David and his commissioning and ask the question, well, what is it that we can learn from David in his commissioning, in his calling to be the next king of Israel? And I want to ask a specific question about King David in chapter 1 Samuel 16, where we'll be in just a moment if you want to turn there, 1 Samuel 16, is what does the Bible teach us about true beauty? True beauty. And that's what we learn from the life of uh, King David here. Uh, maybe a little di- different direction uh, this morning, but, but I, I think it's important that there's, the story is not random. It's, it's supposed to tell us something about, remember every writer has an agenda when they put, write the scriptures. They have a theological agenda. They're trying to hint at something, trying to show us something. And through the commissioning of David, we get a little glimpse of what is true beauty in God's eyes? How does God really work in the world? What is valuable to God, and we see it in the life of King David. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm just going to read the first 13 verses there. 1 Samuel chapter 16, first 13 verses there or so. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Isn't it interesting that he mentions Bethlehem. That sounds like a familiar part of the Jesus story, um, if you know the story. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And the consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Remember that. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shemab pass by him. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was Ruddy, I don't know if it's Ruddy or Rudy, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of God. 
for us this morning. So what do we learn about David and what do we learn about biblical beauty? And I want to start with the why of biblical beauty. I'm going to take probably the most time on this first point, but the other ones will go faster. But the why of biblical beauty, why does this matter? There's so many things that we should, should care about in the world. There's so many things we should care about in the scriptures, but it seems like talking about beauty seems like kind of low on the totem pole, if you will, maybe low on the list. But I think when we look at the context of this story and we look at the life of Israel and where they are in this time in redemptive history, this is the absolute prime time to talk about something like what is true beauty in the eyes of God. Because in the context, if you go back to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel 15, Saul was king, and Saul starts off really well as the king. If you know the story of, uh, of these kings, Samuel is great, or Saul is great. He loves the Lord. He's obedient to the Lord, and that ends really quickly. And so when we pick it up in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is going to lose his kingship. He's done for because he has stopped obeying the Lord. He's doing king things. And what happens is when you get power and you become a king, what often can happen instead of being obedient to God and saying, how can I serve the people and love the people and help the people flourish? I make it about me and I make it about power and I make it about all that the kingship gives me. And so we read in 1 Samuel 15, just to give you a little context, in verse 21, it says, But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than a fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Samuel reveals what Saul has done is that he stopped listening to God. He stopped obeying God. Actually, what Samuel's saying to him is actually these sacrifices that you are making, bringing these animals as sacrifice that God has commanded, yes, but it's better to listen and obey God. Sacrifice can be empty. Sacrifice can be hollow. You can bring all kinds of sacrifice to God in an external manner, and your heart can be far from God. And that's where Samuel is. He's doing things now, not out of love and obedience and worship to God. He's doing it for himself. There's an external reality to him. There's a, a, a if you look at his life and you look at his actions, it's all external, but there's nothing going on inside. His inner desire to obey and listen to God have been gone and cut off. So be careful of empty sacrifices that are just external. Be careful of, you know, coming to, to, to worship. Be careful of living our lives before God. And it's just all external. It's all going through the motions, reading the scriptures, singing the songs, but there's no heart behind it. There's no desire to actually love and obey God. And what's fascinating is in the scriptures, this isn't the only time. Actually, King David, uh, David himself write, wrote a psalm in Psalm 51. And he says something very similar. Maybe you're familiar with it. In Psalm 51, verse 16, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Here's the tricky irony of this all. God demands sacrifice in the Old Testament. So is God speaking out of both the sides of his mouth? <laughs> 
Like, did you tell us to bring sacrifices? Weren't, you, weren't we supposed to bring the rams and the goats and the unblemished lamb to God as a sacrifice as a, 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 to atone for our sins? Like, isn't that part of the, the Old Testament sacrificial system? Yeah, it is. The reason for the sacrificial system was always to test what's in your heart. It was not about external things. It was not about, here's my, my ram, here's my, my goat, because why is God's people always getting in trouble? It's when they don't take the time and think about the worship and the sacrifice they're giving to God, and they bring a lamb that is not the best of the lambs. It's a sick lamb. It's a lamb that walks with a limp. They're not thinking about, this is God, a holy God, a loving God. I want to give my best to him. I want to give my all to him. And so there's this sacrifice, but he says, what's better is that you have a broken and contrite spirit, that you come humbly before God, that you realize that all that you have and all that you are, that you have been shown grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. So your sacrifice and your worship is out of a spirit of humility, knowing that my life is all grace because God has shown me eternal mercy and grace to me. You can sacrifice in an external way. You can live in an external way and your heart can be far from God. He says, I want a broken and humble heart before me knowing it's all about you. And I am what I am because of your grace and because of your mercy. It's kind of like the phrase we say often is they're just going through the motions. You ever heard that phrase? Right? It just seems like they're going through the motions, right? My, a lot of my kids play sports and play basketball, and sometimes there's, there's a kid or maybe even my own kid. I don't know. But they're just, it feels like they're just going through the motions, right? Like they're there, but they're not playing that hard, right? They're just kind of like a shell, right? It's the same thing with us. Externally, we can, can kind of just like, yeah, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, read the Bible today or came to church or what have you, but their hearts are far from God. And Jesus talks about this as well in the Gospels in Matthew 15. He calls out the Pharisees in uh, Matthew 15, starting in verse 8. He says, the people honor me, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And right before this, the Pharisees call out the disciples because they're not washing their hands on the Sabbath. And he says, you can go through all the rituals of washing your hands and keeping the Sabbath and keeping all the laws and the commandments, but your heart can still be far from me. It's all external. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, I say all of that because Saul is losing the plot. And this makes absolute sense when we get to chapter 16 about what is true biblical beauty. Because Saul is all about the external. It's all about, you know, being a king and power. But as he's lost the obedience, the reason he's even doing this, the reason he's even serving God's people, it's no longer about God and the worship of God and the glory of God and honoring God. It's about himself and what he gets from it. And so as God is commissioning David, he's reminding his people what really matters and how this whole thing works, that obedience is better than sacrifice. You can look good on the outside and do all the right things, but internally, you want nothing to do with me. And isn't that a lot of what the story of Israel was about? It's about this people who are doing all the external things, but the reality is they're not doing it because they love God. I mean, we just saw a couple weeks ago, or even last week and the week before when Josh preached on the Red Sea, it's like they, they want to go back to Egypt. They'd rather be in slavery. Can we have a new leader, right? 
And so, so what does this have to do with, with biblical beauty? Well, let's go back to our text, 1 Samuel 16. In verse 6, it says, when they came, God's called Samuel to come to Jesse. He's got seven sons. He's going to find the next king. He says he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel must have seen a man who was ripped, right? Six-pack abs, beautiful, strong, right? This has to be it. I mean, this, I mean, of all the people that can lead Israel, the king, right? It's, it's got to be, right? And this is, like, this is common. Like, this is not strange. Like, if I was Samuel and I saw this guy who was huge and strong and buff, and it's like, well, that guy, right? The external, of course. Because in the ancient world, you want some weak king? No, you want someone who's strong, who can protect women and children, who can protect the country, who can lead the country. Of course, he's going to look on the external and go, yeah, that's our guy, right? But notice what he says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or in the height or on the height of the stature. Tall dude, seven footer, got a good inside game, good post game. Because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. It's a total human move by Samuel. He sees this man, he's tall, stature, six-pack abs, right? Just probably has like blonde Fabio hair just blowing in the wind, right? Probably just like a perfect hue of skin, like just hasn't been touched by the sun. Like he's just this gorgeous man, right? That's our guy. God actually says, do not look on his appearance or in the height of the stature because I have rejected him. Like, he doesn't just say, no, 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 move on. I've rejected him. Nope, not our guy. Not the one. This can't be it. Because when we look at the externals, the thing that you realize and we look on the the human heart is that the externals don't last. That true biblical beauty is an inside job, right? And so Samuel, he's going through all the sons. He keeps going in verse 8, right? Okay, Abinadab. Made him pass before Samuel. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. Said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these? All these strong and strapping young men, none of them? They got height? I mean, I, we got a serious basketball team here. We got height. We got depth. We got strength, right? None of them. Because external beauty is temporal, isn't it? If you go look at my wedding album, my kids love doing this because they wonder where those people went. <laughs> Me and Chrissy, young, unblemished, got, I got weird youth pastor hair, um, just strapping, young, got the whole world in front of us, right? Just There's just no blemishes, no pain and suffering that we've suffered, right, of being married, at least for her, me putting her through that, right? Just skinny in shape, right? This beautiful things. And then it's like, my kids are like, who are those people? And then I remember going and sitting with my grandparents, and I remember looking at old photo albums of them when they were first married. I'm just like, these are the most beautiful, good-looking people I've ever seen. And here they are sitting, 83, 84, 85 years old, wrinkly falling apart. Now we laugh and we giggle, but that's coming for all of us. 
Like, like we know that deep down, and yet we still think it's external. It's how I look. It's how I'm dressed. It's how much makeup I'm wearing, right? It's all about the external, but it's coming for all of us. Because the external is temporary, but the internal, the character, is forever. And the scriptures say as, as much. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, the apostle Paul's writing here, and he says this profound thing in verse 7, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with the irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life now and also for the life to come. External is temporary. He says, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for a life that has a gospel-driven character, a a life that is birthed by the spirit of of love and joy and peace and self-control. Those things will last forever. Yeah, you can, there's some value in going to the gym. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying, hey, like, just these, you know, our, th- these meat puppets that we have, these, these kind of temporal things. Hey, you should care about those things. Because I know when I preach sermons like this, everyone's just like, oh, it's just all spirit and it's all spiritual and da-da-da. No, no, no. We need to take care of our bodies. Yes and amen. Right? Get some kale in there once in a while. It's good for you. Right? We've been on this, like, cleanse. I- I'm hating my life right now, but I-, I feel like it's helping a little bit. Right? Just get some green stuff, some colorful, f- you know, it's good. Right? Go walk around the block. Awesome but this meat puppet's going away. This thing is temporary. That actually, Apostle Paul says in the resurrection life, we're going to get brand new resurrected bodies. But what will last is godliness, the inside job, the the character that is built by God and his spirit of love and joy and peace and self-control and gentleness and kindness. Those things will last. Everything else is temporal. And so what our text is trying to say to us, I believe, is that this moment in the life of history is, is, I know you want a human king, but I want you to be careful because if you only look on the externals and the stature and the strength, you can be deceived. The kind of king I want is a man after my heart. And that's who David is. Something that comes from the inside, a, a character of love and wisdom, Right? And isn't it sad that that's not even on the radar for most of us in our time and our place in this cultural moment, right? When we think about our elected officials and we think about our pastors and we think about anything that doesn't matter about their character, right? Can they preach a sermon, right? They look good on a camera, right? Are they good looking? Are they savvy with money? Are they good in the workplace? Are they, right? We don't care what they think or who they are or how they treat their wives or their kids or their neighbors. None of that matters at all. It's all external, right? How smart are they? How competent? How intelligent are they? How is that working for us? And what God is doing is warning, I know you want a human king, but it's going to go badly if I'm not ultimately your king the one who's full of all wisdom and love, right? If we're thinking that they're the ones that's gonna save us, they're the one that's gonna get us to the promised land, just be careful because it's our inclination as humans to always look on the external and equate the external with the internal. And it's a slippery slope, let me tell you, right? 
And so everything's about the external, but the external's going away. It's temporal, but the internal of heart and wisdom and love and character is for now and forever. I'll go back to the Apostle Paul one more time. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says something very uh, similar. He says in verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This thing is transient because there's a new body that we'll get in the resurrection. He's saying, look at the outward body. It's going to waste away just like your grandmother and your grandfather, just like all of us. But inwardly, by the Spirit of God, we are being renewed day by day into the people that God would have us be, and that will last forever. That will last forever. And, and I think this text just speaks to, to our moment. I, I remember reading a book years ago, but this book was written probably 30, 40 years ago by Neil Postman. It's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I don't know if you've read it, but it's an interesting book because it's really talking about what we see now today with TV and social media and, and, and how that affects us and how we take in news and how we, it affects us and how we understand people and see things. And he was talking about, he gives this example about Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, when he runs against Davis, obviously many, many years ago in the 1800s is that when they'd have a debate as presidents, you didn't have pictures like we do now. We didn't have tons of photo opportunities, right? It was very difficult to get a snap of photo back in those days. But what they would do was actually transcribe all of the debates on paper, right? Remember we used to read? That used to be a thing. Um, but it was actually written out on paper. And you could read the debates after they de debated each other, right? If Abraham Lincoln and Davis walked down the street, maybe 5% of the population would even know who they were. Because we just didn't have pictures. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know what they looked like, Right? So that's interesting because everything was written out. You can learn what the person was about. You can learn their policy. You can learn uh, from their speeches, right? But everything was, was text-based. And then something interesting happened in our cultural moment. It was JFK versus Nixon in 1960. It was the first televised debate, presidential debate in the history of the world. Good-looking JFK, not-so-good-looking Nixon. Some would argue that the only reason that JFK won was because he was better-looking. Who is this young, strapping 40-year-old, right, debating the grisly old Nixon, right? And this isn't a conversation about which policy was better, who was a better president, or who was, I mean, Nixon obviously had his problems, JFK had his problems, obviously. But the point is, it was all image-based. So everyone was making their decisions based on what the guy looked like, not what they thought, not their character, not, right, their policies. It was all image-based, and it still is. We make our decisions based on the external. It's probably why, and we just came off the Martin Luther King holiday, and one of the things we, we try to do, and I, I always remind myself, is I, I love the I Have a Dream speech, and I'll, I'll read some of MLK's books, and just remember this part in history, because I think it's an important part, and it's still a fight that's going on. But it, you remember that famous speech, I Have a Dream? He says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by what? By the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Skin is external. 
African-Americans were judged purely by this color of their skin. It had nothing to do with their character, right? So we create these narratives of, well, these people look a certain way, so they must be X, Y, Z, right? We still do it today, right? I mean, we all do it, right? We walk into a room. It's part of being human is to judge and go like, well, they look kind of odd. I wonder what's going on with them, right? We look at the externals. We look at, but we don't know their character. We don't know their heart. We don't know what's going on inside. And so God in this moment with, with Samuel is reminding the people that this whole thing, that if we get enamored with the externals, it's going to go off the rails real fast. If we don't care about what's going on inside the person and the character and the kind of person there are. And so even as a church in New City, we need to be asking the question, are we becoming more beautiful people inside, not just outside, right? Like nobody wants to be the 80-year-old with like facelifts. Like they just look weird. Just everything's pinned back and they look kind of greasy and weird and odd. But the kind of person from the inside who's loving and patient and kind, that's what our world needs more of. That are wise, that have self-control, right? But yet we've been enamored by all the external. Are they powerful? Are they competent, right? Are they good programmers, right? Can they handle a dollar? Like, that's what we need, right? Like, that's why things are falling apart. It's because we need more people that can be better programmers or, you know, buy Twitter or, right, or go get us to the moon. Like, that's what we need, right? So are we becoming the kind of people that, that are learning how to love God well, love each other well, be loved well? Are we becoming the kind of people that, that are becoming more wise and loving? Or are we only worried about how we appear on the outside? I told you that would be the longer one, but this one's not as long. So the why, external beauty is temporal, internal beauty is forever. But where does this biblical beauty, as I'm calling it, the origins, where's the origins of biblical beauty? Where does it it come from? Notice what happens to David. David is not going to be the kind of king that he needs to be. He's not going to be the kind of person that he needs to be in his own willpower and might and experience. You know why? Because he doesn't have any. Right? He's the shepherd boy out with the sheep. And they're like, hey, isn't there like that little guy? The, the sheep guy? Isn't he like out in the field? Maybe you should call him in and be, right? I mean, his resume is not very long. Like, what is his resume? Like, hey, you want to lead the nation? Like, I know you've led some sheep. It's probably the same, right? But notice what happens in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of God, God's presence came and rushed on him and began to live through him. Now, I think it's really important for us to understand the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God falls on someone, it's God saying, I have a purpose for you. I have a mission for you. You're not going to pull this off in your own strengths. You're not going to pull this off with your own, you know, intellect and competence. You need the Spirit of God actually living in and through you. And so the Spirit comes on David, which is a good thing because we know next week he's going to be David and Goliath. And like, there's not a good chance unless God's at work in that. He's not going to be able to lead the people with his lack of experience, this little runt without God's help, without God's Spirit. Now, I think it's important, though, when we go back to verse 7, 
But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height or stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man see, looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I want us also to understand this is that when God's looking on the heart in the case of David, he's not saying all these other brothers and sons have flawed hearts, but David has a good heart. That's not really what it says here. Because we know from scripture, that's not true on anyone, right? He's he's saying, hey, we all have flawed hearts, but there is a heart that I'm going to work on and I'm going to change to make after my own heart. God is even looking into the future. He knows how David, now David's going to do horrible things. And that's why I'm saying this isn't a, you know, he's good and they're bad, right? That what we need though to have this kind of beauty is something that works from the inside out, namely the spirit of God. All of us have fractured, broken, wicked hearts that need healing. All of our hearts are bent away from God and his goodness and his love and bent away from the goodness of our neighbors and turned inward, turned towards sin. That's all of us. We're all, that's David included. But we need the spirit of God to become the kind of people, to become the beautiful people that God has called us to be. That's why, you know, you've met people that, You know, there's some people that are just angry and cruel, and it's very obvious. It's very out there. It's very in your face, right? And then we meet other people that aren't even Christians, and you go like, man, they're just like the kindest, most patient, loving people I've ever met. But let me tell you about all of those people, Christian or non-Christian, is that every human still has the seeds of anger and cruelty in them. Every one of us. And sometimes the only reason we don't lash out is because of the ways we were maybe raised by our, our families or maybe our culture, like, right? We just learned, okay, just don't like punch someone back if they punch you or just don't lash out, like hold it together, you know, just, right? You've been trained by, by someone or something or some environment, but all of us have the seed of anger and cruelty in us. Here's why it's one of my favorite things. If you ever watch these crime shows or you hear a newscast and there's like a neighbor who just like, hurt a lot of, I know we have kids in here. Um, Let's just say they found a lot of neighbors in the freezer. You always hear this phrase. He was the nicest neighbor. He was quiet and loving. He like mowed my lawn, right? And just does this like horrible thing, right? Whatever the horrible thing is, what is that? Because in all of us, there's a seed of anger. There's someone who's ready to explode on all the external uh, metrics. It looks like they're good and they're nice and they're godly, but something's going on inside. We need the spirit of God. We need help. We need God's divine help to become the kind of people, to become the beautiful people that God has called us to be. And David needed the spirit of God to become the kind of king that God wanted him to be. In the New Testament, we read in Galatians, the the famous passage about the spirit and the work of the spirit in our lives and how it creates new character in us. Galatians chapter five says in verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified with the flesh with its passions and 
desires. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you trust in Christ, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in you and gives you a new heart. A heart that is aimed at love and joy and peace and gentleness, self-control, perseverance, right? We are changed from the inside out. That's why Paul uses that dichotomy. He says, this is how you used to be. It used to be everything was against me, away from me. It wasn't about love and joy and peace and self-control. Like, imagine a people that had self-control. Holy cow, the world would change overnight. We have no self-control on anything, right? If I can get it, I'm going to get it, right? If I can do it, I'm going to do it, right? There's no self-control, right? There's there, How much love are we lacking? How much peace are we lacking, right? But, but this is what God is up to in the universe is to create a truly beautiful people that's not bent on the externals. It's not bent on intelligence and creativity and, and the ways in which we get lulled to sleep and, and, oh, they look so good and they look so pretty and they're so amazing. But God wants to do an inside job where he's creating this very ordinary people that are living in the world that are full of love and joy and peace and self-control. Things that are going to last now and until eternity. I mean, my kids are, are sitting here, well, some of them, they just keep leaving, probably coffee break. But um, the thing I want for them, and my wife and I talk about this all the time, more than anything, is not that they get straight A's or can dunk a basketball It'd be awesome if they could. Uh, being a five foot nine uh, former uh, basketball player, that was never in the cards for me. But that they would be men and women of character that love the Lord. They were patient and kind and loving and peaceful. Like that is the stuff that will last forever. All the other stuff is temporary. How many people do you work with? How many people do you know that they're great at their job and they're horrible humans, right? What would you rather be, good at an Excel spreadsheet or be a loving, kind person, right? Sorry, Richard, I know I offended you there. He's like, I don't know, it's a toss-up. <laughs> we can do both, right? You can be good at Excel spreadsheets, but also be good human. But it comes from the spirit, Right? And so every moral philosopher, every theologian, every human knows that this is the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be loving, right? We're supposed to be patient. We're supposed to be self-controlled. We all want it. We all know that deep in our bones, that's the way it's supposed to be. We just don't know how to get there. That's the trick. And that's the sad part. And the only way it can happen is if the Spirit of God, God himself, comes to help us. And that's the only way that David was going to be a beautiful people, not a person and lead his people. And that was the only way that, that anyone is going to lead anything or do anything. And this was a reminder to Israel, don't get seduced into the external because it's a dead end. And you're going to look out at all these big, strong nations with all their might and all their power and all their money, and you're going to get seduced into believing that's it. And you're going to become a people where their hearts are far from me, and it's going to go badly for you often. And we know from history, and we know from Israel, we know from human history, that is true in every way. In every way. So let me close with this. How do we cultivate true biblical beauty? Well, if you go back to our text, you remember Samuel goes through all the sons, right? These young, strapping, tall, buff Men, 
going, okay, well, wh- where is this king? Where is, do you have another son? Isn't there a son out in the field or something? And we, we pick it up in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy or Rudy, I don't know, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. David is the runt of the litter. When it says, um, and he said there remains yet the youngest, it also can mean the smallest because he was the youngest, but he's the smallest. And this word ruddy or Rudy, it's actually, it actually means red face. Children, when they're younger, typically have a reddish hue before they get older. Isn't that right? Most of them. <laughs> He's a young, small boy, a child, if you will, that God is going to choose and use to be the king of Israel. Has nothing to do with the external. Yeah, it's, he's handsome. He's got nice eyes, it says, right? Probably nice. I don't know what color his eyes were, but beautiful, handsome man. But he has no experience, right? But there's something about this guy. There's something about the way God works that he doesn't look at all the things that we think we should look at. The strong, strapping, the ones who can protect Israel, just like the other sons of Jesse says, actually the one who's tending the sheep that didn't even come in. He's the one I want. Some theologians debate over this. I don't, I don't want to read into it, but it's kind of interesting. Why is he out in the field still? Could it be maybe that even David knew something that that's not it, that's not important to me, right? I'm just going to do my job, right? I'm going to be the, the sheep herder that I was called to be. I don't really care what's going on with the other brothers. It doesn't really matter to me. And yet that's the one that God chooses, the unlikely candidate. The one who's a child, the one that doesn't have the resume yet would be the one who would be after God's own heart. And this isn't, the Bible's not teaching, you know, you know, it's only ugly people that matter, right? Like if you have any, you know, you're decent looking, like God can't use you or, you know, whatever. That, that's not what this is saying. But what he's saying is what is superior to the external, what is superior because it's going away is don't just look on the, the external, but know that the internal matters just as much or more. When we were looking at hiring Scott, now, again, I'm going to be careful how I say this, Scott, because I don't want you to be offended, but I cared more about Scott's character than I did his competence, and he's a very competent guy. I'm not saying that, but what's going to last longer, what's going to be best for New City Church was a godly character, not how good he can preach a sermon, and he's a good preacher. I'm not saying that. Sorry, Scott. I'm going to just, like, beat you up here, and Matt, too, Right? Great guitar player. Do, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Tapping his toes. I mean, right? And we needed someone who was competent in music. Yes and amen. But what I cared more about for Matt was his godly character, how he treated his wife and how he treated his kids, not how good he can strum a guitar. Right? Some of you are like, no, actually, we do need someone who can strum a guitar. But... But we get seduced into that, that that's what's going to last longer than anything. And what's going to be best for you and what's going to be best for me is godly character, not how well they preach a sermon or how well they can design a website or handle the numbers. And and all those things are important, and I'm not minimizing those things. 
But God is after something different with David and with us and with his people. And I, and I think when we look at David in this story, it's kind of this ancient Cinderella story, isn't it? He's the shepherd, he's the runt, he's out in the field, he's doing his domestic chores, and he's overlooked by the other seven brothers, right? You know the Cinderella story. Now he's invited into the party to be the king. He's the chosen one. He's the loved one. He has no resume. He has no reason to be there. He doesn't deserve it, right? It's not because he's superior to anyone else. He's actually the opposite of those things. But isn't that how the gospel works? Isn't that how grace works? God used the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the Davids of the world, the runts, right? The red-faced boy with no resume to be the king of Israel. That's exactly how God God works. And some would even argue that this whole story, and, and if you go back in the Old Testament, this, um, this it's a fancy word, I don't even know how to say it correctly, but it's, it's primogeniture, which basically means like in the ancient world, the, the sons or the oldest born were given all the wealth and all the assets in the family. But when you go through the Old Testament, you start to see the reversal of that, right? You see the reversal of Abel, not Cain, Jacob, not Esau, Moses, not Aaron. You see it with Baron, Sarah, not Hagar, Rachel, not Leah, right? He chooses these sons and these daughters that shouldn't have been chosen. They aren't the competent ones. They aren't the beautiful ones. They aren't the ones that you build a movement on or build redemption around. And yet that's exactly who God goes after. The most unlikely people. And it's the same people that he uses today like you and like me, the outsiders with no social capital. And yet God still saves and God still redeems. And that's the backwardness of the kingdom. First Corinthians 1, the backwardness, backwardsness of the cross, if you will. First Corinthians 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That even in the cross, the Greeks sought intellect and wisdom, Jews sought signs and powers, but God in his wisdom says, weakness is the new strong. Weakness is the new strong. That it's through the weak things of the world. It's through the people you'd unexpect, through the ways in which are unexpected that I'm going to redeem and restore all things. And this is like slow pitch softball. We know low hanging fruit, whatever weird analogy you want to use. We know Jesus was the one who had no beauty, it says in Isaiah. He was the one that was scorned. He was the one that was rejected. He was the one on the cross you couldn't look in, in the face. Yet it was him losing his beauty of eternity and glory, coming into humanity to lay his life down, to lose his beauty. Why? So that we could gain eternal beauty. So that we could be saved and redeemed and rescued from sin and hell, from those things that, that, that get us enamored on the external and the things that don't really matter, the things that are going away. God would lose his beauty so that we could become beautiful in him. That's why Jeremiah 31 says that even in redemption, this covenant would come, that we'd get a new heart, right? That God would do something from the inside out and show us what true beauty looks like. And true beauty is a love that is birthed by God and his spirit. It's about loving God, loving our neighbors, loving ourselves. It can never be taken away. I think what 
God wants to say to us this morning is that it's easy for us to be enamored with the externals. It's easy to be enamored with how we look and how we, you know, done up we are and right and put little emphasis on what's going on inside of me. <laughs> what's going on in my character? What's going on? Am I loving God more? Am I loving my neighbor more? Am I becoming more self-controlled, more patient, more kind, more gentle, right? Are those things coming out of me? Or am I only worried about, you know, what my grades look like or how my job's going, right? Because it's, it's no good to have a, be really good at your job and just be an absolute jerk at the workplace, right? Like there's nothing that says being mature means you're married and have children. I've met enough immature people that have lots of children and are married. It's not apples and oranges. It's not apples to apples. It doesn't mean anything, right? To hold down a job does not mean you're mature and godly and wise. It just doesn't. To have six-pack abs doesn't mean you love Jesus. You can love Jesus and have six-pack abs, but they don't always go hand in hand. So let us be the kind of people that realize true beauty is from the inside out that God gives to us in Christ Jesus. And so as we come to the table this morning, we were reminded of Christ, the Messiah, who lost his beauty so that we could become beautiful in him. Who was nothing to look at. I think that's an interesting point in the scriptures. That if Jesus was this perfect, handsome, you know, just beautiful flowing hair. I know a lot of the paintings, you know, that you see of him, he's very Swedish and very, a lot of product in the hair. I get that. It doesn't seem like that's how the scriptures describe him. But I think if he came along and he looked too well put together, I think people would be enamored with him for all the wrong reasons. I think if he came to a huge urban city that was wealthy and powerful, we'd get enamored with him for all the wrong reasons because he comes to a small, out-of-the-way rural town in Bethlehem, says, this is how my kingdom works. This is how my kingdom works. I've come to redeem all things through and in places you could have never imagined for yourself. Redemption doesn't come from small little towns in Bethlehem. It 